Okay. Uh, welcome, everyone, to this 12th edition of the Surety Today. Next month will be our one-year anniversary. My name is Mike Stover. I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in beautiful, sunny Baltimore, Maryland. I'm joined again today by George Backrack, also a partner in the Surety Law Group here. As you know, Surety Today is designed to keep the busy claims professional up to date and informed on surety industry issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can dial in. If you missed the presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website at www.wcslaw.com or as a podcast at podbean.com, Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals, and we have issued to date 218 pins, and over 485 people have called in since we started the program. Uh, we appreciate the support, obviously, and we ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues you think interested in calling in. If you have any suggestions for topics, as always, or improvements, please let us know. Um, and, of course, if you have any technical issues during the call, contact Ms. Jeannie Hyatt at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. We're going to mute the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Our topic today is the reach of the surety's subrogation rights beyond the bonded contract funds. This is sort of the flip side of our presentation last month, which uh, focused on the limitations of the subrogation rights. Today we focus on how far those subrogation rights can go. George? Normally, the surety subrogation rights are asserted against the bonded contract funds from that contract that the surety bonded with the principal for an obligee. By obtaining the contract funds, the bonded contract funds, the surety may reduce its losses. As Mike said in the surety today presentation on March 13, we addressed some limitations on the surety subrogation rights to the bonded contract funds when competing with the obligee, the principal subcontractors and suppliers, the bank, taxing authorities, and others. In discussing today's surety today topic about the reach of the surety subrogation rights beyond the bonded contract funds to protect and reimburse the surety, we need to again review the four essential elements required for the surety to assert its subrogation rights. First is an obligation of the principal to the obligee, which is the bonded contract. Second is the failure of the principal to perform that obligation, namely the principal's default. Third are the rights in the obligee arising from the principal's default and failure to perform. Those include the obligee's common law rights and the obligee's rights under the bonded contract when the principal defaults. And the fourth is the performance by the surety pursuant to its suretyship obligations of the obligation which the principal failed to perform, the suretyship obligations being the surety's obligations under its bonds. The focus today is on element number three, the obligee's common law rights and contractual rights, as well as the common law and contractual rights of the principal and the principal subcontractors and suppliers, all of which may arise as a result of the principal's default and failure to perform the bonded contract. Those rights may stretch or reach further than just the obligees and the others' rights to the bonded contract funds and may include their rights to other property to which the surety may assert its subrogation rights. Now, I'll note at this point that many, much of what we're talking about 
today is also in the book, The Contract Bond Surety Subrogation Rights, and you may want to refer to that at some point for more details. Our first REACH issue is known as the Common Obligee Doctrine. The target of the surety's assertion of its subrogation rights on the Common Obligee Doctrine is not the bonded contract funds on the project that the surety bonded when the principal defaults under its bonded contract with the obligee. Rather, the target is contract funds that the obligee is holding that it may owe the principal on a totally unrelated contract, whether that unrelated contract was bonded by the surety, some other surety, or not bonded at all. Namely, the surety is seeking to assert its subrogation rights to the obligee's set-off rights. This subject is addressed in detail in Chapter 14 of the Subrogation Book, where the surety's assertion of its subrogation rights to an obligee set-off rights may reduce the surety's loss on a bonded contract because the surety's subrogation rights may reach to the contract funds from a contract that is totally unrelated to the bonded contract on which the principal was in the default and the surety incurred loss. Now, the easiest way to present this issue is with an example. First, let's assume that the principal and the obligee enter into two separate contracts, which were, I'll refer to as Contract 1 and Contract 2, and there is no surety involved in either Contract 1 or Contract 2. Second, also assume that the principal fully performed Contract 1 and is owed $100,000 but the principal defaulted under Contract 2, which caused the obligee to sustain a loss in relation to Contract 2 of $200,000. Under those circumstances, the obligee would possess the common law and perhaps a contractual right to set off any funds in its possession that would otherwise be owed to the principal under Contract 1, namely the $100,000 to reduce the obligee's $200,000 loss on Contract 2. The result would be that the obligee has a net $100,000 loss on Contract 2. Now let's add in the surety and assume that Contract 2 is bonded by the surety and following the principal's default under Contract 2, the obligee paid the surety the remaining bonded contract funds from Contract 2. As a result, the surety and not the obligee has incurred the $200,000 in losses under its performance and payment bonds by completing contract two following the principal's default. In essence, the surety's $200,000 in bond losses prevented the, the obligee from sustaining its own $200,000 loss in relation to contract two. Under the common obligee doctrine, the surety may assert its subrogation rights to the, the obligee's set-off rights against the principal relating to the contract funds that would otherwise be owed by the obligee to the principal under Contract 1, namely the $100,000. The surety would be entitled to recover those $100,000 in contract funds that would otherwise have been paid to the principal under Contract 1 to reduce the surety's $200,000 in losses under Contract 2, leaving the surety with a net loss of $100,000 on Contract 2. When you, when you iron all these things out, the surety would be in the same position as the obligee would be if there were no surety bonds on Contract 2, and each would have a net loss of $100,000. Why can this occur? 
The reason is that upon the principal's default and failure to perform under the bonded contract, the obligee has rights, common law rights and contractual rights, including set-off rights. Therefore, the obligee that owes $100,000 in contract funds to the principal on contract one, but the obligee has incurred $200,000 in losses on the, as a result of the principal's default in contract two, the obligee is not legally required to pay the principal what may be owed under contract one. When the surety is involved, the same thing occurs, and the surety is allowed to use the obligee's set-off rights to reduce its contract two loss of $200,000 by the payment of the $100,000. Now, this is not automatic. There are some bumps in this reach. First, and for set-off rights to work, the obligee must be the same entity that contracted with the principal for both contract one and contract two. Second, the obligee must be a stakeholder for the contract one contract funds and not have any other independent rights to the contract one contract funds, such as obligee losses due to the principal's default on separate contracts three, four, and five none of which are bonded by the surety and on which the obligee has incurred losses. Namely, the obligee gets to make itself whole first before the surety has rights to the excess $100,000 in contract one. Third, if another surety bonded contract one and had losses, its rights to the $100,000 in contract funds from contract one would prevail over the surety's set-off rights. And fourth, under state law, the principal subcontractors and suppliers on contract one may have, con may have trust fund rights or other rights to the $100,000 that would prevail over the surety. But there are some gold mines, too. Uh, there are cases in which an obligee has, who has notice of the surety's assertion of its subrogation rights uh, and uh, subrogation rights to the obligee set-off rights, and then the obligee wrongfully pays those contract one contract funds to another entity, such as the principal, a bank, or others, then the, the obligee may have to pay the surety uh, a second time. Uh, when there's a fight with a bank over the, uh, the contract one funds, the surety has prevailed, the reasoning being that the surety uh, is subrogated the obligee's rights and the principal has no rights to the contract funds from contract one. The same reasoning is true uh, when there's a principal debtor or the principal's trustee in bankruptcy, there is no debt due. Um, there are nuances to the common obligee doctrine that are addressed in chapter 14. Um, the basis for the surety's assertion of a subrogation rights is equitable and the surety will not prevail if the result is not fair and equitable. However, if you need to take away anything from this presentation of this issue, the surety's assertion of its subrogation rights to the obligee's common law and contractual rights of set off, it is to continually remember that the contract to which the surety bond bonded may not be the only contract between the obligee and the principal. And there may be contract one or contract three or contract four contract funds that may be available for the surety to obtain reimbursement and the reduction of the surety's contract two bond losses. Mike? Okay, thanks, George. Um, all right, I'm going to talk about the surety subrogation rights against third parties. And, of course, 
there can be a lot of different circumstances where that could come up, but I'm only going to focus on two real quick here. Uh, one is, is going after insurance companies, and the other is going after design professionals. So in most construction projects, as we all know, there are numerous types of insurance policies that provide coverages for various project-related losses and damages. Typical policies would include the builder's risk, of course, the, the commercial general liability or the CGL policy, design liability, owner-contractor owner protective liability, uh, subcontractor default insurance, excess insurance, wrap-up insurance, etc. If the surety performs and satisfies the requirements for subrogation, it may be subrogated to the benefits of those various insurance policies that may be applicable to the project. Just as a small example, I just wrapped up a case where uh, we, where the surety was sued along with the principal uh, for some uh, faulty pipe work and uh, we, we ended up getting the, um, the principal went into bankruptcy. We ended up getting the stay lifted so we could go after uh, the principal's uh, um, insurance CGL policy. We brought them in, and, and they contributed ultimately after complaining a lot uh, to the settlement. So one has to keep in mind that when the surety exercises its subrogation rights against third parties uh, like insurance companies, those rights will be no greater than the rights of the party to whose shoes the surety is stepping into. Therefore, the surety's subrogation rights will be subject to applicable policy defenses, such as expiration of coverage, exclusions, or the failure to provide timely notice of the claim. It should also be noted that the surety's rights against the insurer are generally only for the insurer's losses that are paid by the surety and not, not more broadly any and all losses that the surety may have incurred. So, of course, when you're doing your investigation on claims, one thing to consider is to inquire about what available insurance coverages there might be in the event that you want to seek uh, use your subrogation rights. So claims against design professionals is the next subject. Design professionals, uh, such as architects and the engineers, have extensive involvement in nearly every aspect of a construction project and are typically retained by the project owner. When the obligee is the owner and asserts a claim against a performance bond, the design professional may have been responsible for some or even all of the surety's losses. That responsibility may arise from things like defective plans and specifications, the failure to properly review the work, wrongful certifications of payments of the work, or other negligent acts. Under such circumstances, the surety may want to assert the design professional's wrongful conduct as a defense to the obligee's performance bond claim or the surety could assert that wrongful conduct of the design professionals as a basis for recovering uh, its performance bond losses. So when the surety has satisfied claims for which the design professionals were responsible and otherwise has met the requirements of subrogation, the surety may assert its subrogation rights to the rights of the obligee against the design professional for design professionals' defective performance and, and hopefully reimburse itself for, for some of the losses. In the absence of subrogation, the surety would typically not be able to assert a claim directly against a design professional on a project because of the operation of the doctrine of privity, unless you're in a jurisdiction that has abolished the privity. The doctrine of privity holds that a design professional does not owe a duty to a party unless the party and the design professional are in direct contractual privity. The doctrine of subrogation gets the surety around privity because the surety is subrogated to the rights of the party who had a direct contractual relationship with the design professional and the surety standing in those shoes of that party and can therefore assert the claim. 
Uh, as an example, there's a case, Acuity, uh, a mutual insurance company versus McGehee Engineering out of the uh, Tennessee Court of Appeals where the court analyzed the surety's rights to assert claims against design engineers based on the surety's right of equitable subrogation. Uh, in that case involved construction of tunnels and water intake pipes underneath the Cumberland River, and the engineer was required under, under its contract to review um, the, the principal's work while it was ongoing and uh, also had design responsibilities and so forth. During construction, the principal refused to follow the specifications and the engineer failed to object. When a subcontractor attempted to do some excavation on the embankment, the embankment started to subside. The engineer was called in to inspect and he recommended just throwing some tarps up on the embankment. Of course, subsequently the embankment collapsed and the, the principal was no longer able to perform and so the surety had to step in and finish the work. Upon completion, the surety asserted claims against the engineer. Now, the trial court ended up granting summary judgment against the surety's claims, and the Tennessee Appellate Court reversed and ruled that under equitable subrogation, the surety st stood in the shoes as the performing surety of the obligee. The obligee had a contract with the engineers, and the surety was able to enforce that contract and those rights pursuant to subrogation. George? Not only may a surety assert its subrogation rights to the obligee set-off rights, but the surety may also assert its subrogation rights to the set-off rights of others, either to obtain reimbursement or to compel the principal and others, such as the obligee or the principal subs and suppliers, to exercise their own set-off rights to reduce their claims against the surety and reduce the surety's liability and loss. The, ability, the right to compel certain parties to exercise their respective set-off rights primarily arises when the principal is insolvent and is unable to reimburse the surety for its losses. Again, for an example, uh, let me give you the following. The principal is insolvent and perhaps in bankruptcy. The payment bond claimant asserts a claim against the surety's payment bond for $10,000. However, the payment bond claimant owes $6,000 to the principal on an unrelated debt or obligation. Under these circumstances, the surety may assert its subrogation rights to either compel the principal to exercise its set-off rights against the amount owed by the claimant to the principal of $6,000, reducing the surety's liability to $4,000, or compel the claimant itself to exercise its set-off rights against the principal for $6,000 that the claimant owes the principal, reducing the surety's liability again to $4,000. Either way, the result is the same. What is avoided in either result is that the surety is not forced to pay $10,000 to the claimant and see the $6,000 due from the claimant to the principal be paid to the principal and then disappear, or be paid to the principal's trustee and distributed to the principal debtor's other creditors. Uh, to deny the surety subrogation rights to compel the parties to exercise their set-off rights would enhance or unjustly enrich the principal's bankruptcy estate by $6,000 at the surety's sole expense due to its $10,000 payment to the claimant. The same subrogation right to compel the principal and a payment bond claimant to set off their mutual obligations for the benefit of the surety to reduce the surety's loss also extends to the surety's right to compel a performance bond obligee to exercise its similar set off rights. 
Like in the common obligee doctrine, there are some nuances to these surety subrogation rights that are addressed in Chapter 14. For example, the surety may not be able to assert its subrogation rights to compel another entity to exercise its set-off rights when the principal is solvent and otherwise able to pay the surety's losses, or the surety has other collateral, such as the proceeds of a letter of credit, to reduce its losses. In the latter instance, the equitable basis for allowing a surety to compel an insolvent principal to exercise its set-off rights does not exist while the surety possesses collateral securing the principal's performance of the bonded obligation. The debtor's bankruptcy estate is not unjustly enriched until the surety has exhausted any collateral it possesses in relation to the bonded obligation. In summary, just as in the common obligee doctrine, one should be aware that the prospects for a surety to reduce its loss may come from asserting its subrogation rights to compel others to exercise their set-off rights. Mike? All right. Thanks, George. All right. So the next topic is the surety subrogation rights to the obligee's rights to inventory and materials purchased for the bonded project. If the surety is subrogated to the rights of the owner, the surety can assert the owner's rights to inventory and materials purchased for the bonded project if such inventory and material are still in the possession of the principal. So let's, let's take an example for this. For example, assume that the surety bonded the flooring subcontractor on a project, and as is typical in the industry, the flooring subcontractor purchased the materials in advance and when the, of when the materials were actually needed in order to ensure their availability and avoid long lead times, and then stored those materials in the warehouse. The principal flooring contractor then went into bankruptcy. The trustee and or the secured lender may seek to assert interest in these materials held in the warehouse. The secured lender could seek to have the automatic stay lifted so that it can sell the principal's inventory, or the trustee may seek to sell the inventory under 11 U.S.C. 363. If the general contractor and or the owner have paid for those stored materials, then a variety of arguments may be asserted to block the trustee and the secured lender from selling off the materials and the subrogated surety standing in the shoes of the owner can assert those arguments to preserve and protect the materials and avoid paying multiple times for such materials. These arguments include that the materials are no longer property of the estate because title is passed from the principal to the general contractor or owner upon payment. At the time of the filing of the bankruptcy, Section 541 of the Bankruptcy Code creates an estate of all property in which the debtor has an interest. But if title has passed to the flooring materials in the debtor's warehouse prior to the bankruptcy, then the debtor does not have an interest in such materials and they are not property of the bankruptcy estate. Title can also pass in, in materials in a variety of ways. For example, through the language of the underlying bonded contract, there could be a provision in there talking about the transference of title upon the payment and storage of the materials. There could be a transfer of title through a bill of sale. Uh, when the principal is, is paid, um, they may be required to execute a bill of sale. It could also be through the operation of law under the UCC in which uh, materials have been segregated and identified for a project, then the UCC may provide a transference of title there. If title has passed, the materials are not subject to security interests of the lender when such purchase was by a good faith purchaser for value. Other arguments such as constructive trust and bailment may also be asserted to establish that the debtor only has a possessory interest and not an ownership interest. Okay, so the next um, topic would be the surety subrogation rights to the payment bond claimant's mechanics lien rights. 
So everyone no doubt has some familiarity with mechanics lien rights. Mechanics liens are statutory rights that apply to unpaid contractors, subcontractors, and possibly suppliers, depending on your on your uh, statute, on private projects. Mechanics lien statutes typically allow a party that has performed work for or about a building to place a lien on the property if the pro- if the party is not paid. Such lien rights do not apply to property of the federal, state, or local governments. The question is, if the surety performs by paying a subcontractor and supplier who has mechanics lien rights, can the surety be subrogated to those mechanics lien rights? According to Golden Eagle Insurance Company versus First Nationwide Financial Corporation um, out of the California Appellate Fourth District, address this very issue under California law. In Golden Eagle, the general contractor was hired by the property owner to construct infrastructure of a residential plan unit development, you know, the roads, curbs, gutters, sidewalks, that kind of stuff. And the, uh, the, the GC obtained bonds from Golden Eagle Insurance Company and uh, subcontracted some of that work, including the grading work, to a subcontractor. The grading sub performed the work, but then was not paid by the GC or the property owner. The owner also had not paid the GC. The grading sub initiated mechanics liens actions against the property, and the surety ultimately paid the, uh, the subcontractor's claim and substituted itself as the plaintiff in the mechanics lien action. The trial court in the mechanics lien action granted summary judgment against the surety, and the appellate court reversed and held that if the surety can satisfy all the requirements of subrogation, then it could be subrogated to the mechanics lien rights of a subcontractor. The court noted, however, that because of the equitable nature of subrogation, if the owner has fully satisfied its contractual obligations to pay for the work in question, then the owner has committed no wrong, and permitting subrogation would inequitably subject the owner to double payment in order to free the property of the lien against it. If the owner has breached the contractual obligation to pay the GC, as occurred in Golden Eagle, then the owner would not be an innocent party. Under those circumstances, permitting the surety to enforce the mechanics lien to the extent of the outstanding balance that remains due from the owner for the performance of the underlying work would, to that extent, provide the surety with, with repayment to which it is entitled and would work no injustice. George? Under, I'm switching gears. Under the uh, bankruptcy code, the bankruptcy code provides certain priorities to certain creditors. Unless the surety has collateral, such a lien on the debtor's property, a letter of credit, uh, or other such collateral, the surety's losses under its bonds normally result in the surety having an unsecured claim against the debtor and the property in the debtor's estate. However, under Section 507 of the Bankruptcy Code, the statute sets out which claims have priority and the order of priority to distributions from the property of the debtor's bankruptcy estate. However, Section 507D specifically states that an entity such as a surety that is subrogated to the rights of the holder of a claim that has priority under Section 507 is not subrogated to the right of the holder of such claim to those priorities which their claim may have. There are three clear instances where the surety is not subrogated to the priority rights of a bond claimant under 507D. First, when the payment bond surety pays the wages or salaries of the principal debtors, laborers, or employees, which have priority under 507. Uh, Second, when the tax bond surety pays a tax that has priority. Third, when the customs bond, customs importer bond surety pays a duty arising out of the importation of merchandise of that 
uh, which has priority. So there are certain times when there are priorities and the surety will not, under the code, be subrogated to those rights. Um, the cases provide that the surety could have protected itself by securing collateral before it executed the above bonds and therefore should not get a bump up in priority over other unsecured creditors just because the surety paid an obligation or claim that has priority under the bankruptcy code. However, the surety may obtain priority under Section 507 if the surety pays an obligation that is an administrative expense. The administrative expense would include the payment of the actual necessary costs and expenses of preserving the estate. While this may include wages and salaries and commissions for services rendered after the commencement of the bankruptcy case, it would not necessarily include wages and salaries for which the surety is already obligated to pay under a payment bond executed prior to the bankruptcy case petition date. However, if the bonded contract is assumed by the debtor post-petition, then the debtor's obligations under the bonded contract may rise to the level of an administrative expense to the extent that the debtor has to cure any defaults in order to assume that bonded contract. In that situation, the surety that may have paid or may have to pay a claim under the performance bond or payment bond on a bonded contract that has been assumed by the debtor may arise to the level of an administrative expense claim. Uh, this is pretty complex stuff that requires piecing together many sections of the bankruptcy code to determine whether an obligation that the surety has paid or may have to pay under a particular bond has priority as an administrative expense, um, but the possibility should not be ignored and should be uh, you should keep track of that if you have that situation. Mike? Okay, George, thanks. Um, the last subject I wanted to hit on, we're getting close on time here, so I'll just briefly mention it. I don't know how often this would really come into play, but I just thought it was interesting that uh, one aspect of subrogation, if you, if you satisfy the claim of the government, then the surety can st will stand in the shoes of the government, and then the doctrine of nullum tempus accurit regi would apply to the surety, which roughly means, and I'm taking somebody else's word for this because I don't know anything about Latin, but it roughly means time does not run against the crown. So therefore, if the surety is subrogated to the rights of the government, then the surety can argue that the statute of limitations doesn't apply against it. So if you're ever in a situation where limitations has run, but you've satisfied the claim of the government and you're, and you're subrogated to the rights of the government, then you can assert, you can assert the, uh, the fact that nullum tempus is, is, uh, bars the limitations against you. So there's a couple cases. There's one here in Maryland, and there's a Sixth Circuit case and one in California. So uh, we'll, we'll get those to you. Of course, you don't get uh, subrogated to the police powers of the state, so you won't be able to pin on a badge and strap on a gun or anything like that and throw some principals in jail, but uh, that's interesting. So uh, closing down here, before we uh, open up the line for Q&A, the next session will be Monday, May 8th at 1230. The topic will be bid bonds and I will be joined by Lou Kozlikowski. Uh, upcoming events, the PSCA's rescheduled lunch for March will be April 12th. Our speaker is going to be Phil Alber. Um, Southern Surety Claims Conference is April 19th through the 21st in Nashville. Uh, the Atlanta Surety Claims Association lunch meeting is May 4. 
The uh, ABA FSLC spring meeting is May 10 through 12th in Naples, and Chicago Surety Claims is holding their lunch meeting May 18th, which is then followed by the uh, DRI meeting in Chicago on the 19th. So that is the end, and I will unmute the line. All right, so we're open up for any questions. You know, any good questions that aren't, like, too hard for us to answer, those kind of questions. <laughs> Simple ones. Yeah. We, we covered a – let me do – this is George again. We covered a lot of ground here because the subrogation rights really can reach a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, you can be very creative if you can show that you are equitable in your assertions um, and you have rights that you can assert, uh, then you can expand your segregation rights to m obtain many things. Uh, uh, certainly the, one of the biggest ones was the one that Mike talked about, which is against third parties. Um, but all of these segregation rights were the creation of people who had good ideas and, and recognized the rights that they had and then pursued them. So with that sort of overview, after we gave you the presentation, are there any questions? All right, we take that as a no. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a good day. Thank you very much. All right, thank, thank you. you. Thank Bye. you.
how are you? 